Hello everyone, welcome back to the Early Education Show. We're here with episode 72. I'm Liam. I'm Lisa. And I'm Leanne. And we'll be having a discussion later on. Our main topic for the night will be looking at the concept of flexible early education or flexible childcare, as it's more uh, more often termed. And we're going to talk about a particular article that sort of sparked that discussion and then have a chat. Um, but before we, we went on, we wanted to quickly, sort of in lieu of our usual, usual sort of news list or news chat or whatever we started calling it, is just mention a fairly big bit of news that's starting this week, which is that the, uh, the Australian Independent Education Union, the AIEU, uh, we'll be uh, heading to Fair Work Australia to uh, give verbal evidence and, and, and contribute to hearings in the, AE, the, uh, the I, oh God, the AIEU, there's going to be so many acronyms in this news item, everyone, sorry, uh, in the AEIU's uh, pay equity case. Now, listeners you may You know rem- what? I actually don't think that's their acronym. I think it's the IEUA. UA. Yeah, I think it is too. Well, the media release I saw, it was definitely the... I, oh no, you're right. It is the I, oh my God. See, can we just listen well, for a sec? We're not editing this out. Can we just say uh, there, there are too many, the, the new childcare subsidy acronyms I think have broken my brain and there's no room for any other new acronyms at the moment. But it, okay. or, or, as long as you don't know, get your CSS mixed up with your ACCS and your... Um, uh, you know, <laughs> and you've got to have a CWA in place before you can, you know, before you can get onto the PEP. It's just, yeah, come on, people. This stuff's simple. Anyway, so this, um, uh, listeners may remember at the start of the year in February, there was another Fair Work case that was thrown out by Fair Work. Um, and we had uh, talks with both Martel Menz from the uh, Victorian IEU and Verena Heron from uh, the, uh, the, uh, the IEU as well, who, uh, were, who, who did a much better job than I'm going to do now quickly explaining the differences between these two cases. Uh, so both cases were launched in 2013. The United Voice uh, and AEU one, is that right? Oh, yeah, yeah, the yep. AEU uh, were more focused on comparing the work of uh, educators, so birth to five, that they didn't have to have teaching degrees, so the people under the Children's Services Award, uh, with metal workers uh, in the engineering sector. And this was largely because there'd been a case in the sort of mid-2000s that had been successful in that comparison. Uh, That case was unfortunately thrown out, so that link wasn't accepted by Fair Work Australia. This case was launched at the same time, uh, but is is focused on early childhood teachers, and is going to more directly compare early childhood teachers with primary school teachers, as well as making a gender comparison uh, with the engineering sector. Uh, So I guess we... You know, we, obviously we throw our full support behind this case. Martel Menz, who's been on the show a couple of times now, will be giving evidence in the next few days. So we're really excited that she's going to be one of the ones speaking up for, for teachers and educators around Australia. And I think, you know, just briefly, this will be focused on teachers. So it will be focused on early childhood teachers, but it could have huge ramifications for the rest of the sector if it's supported, because it would uh, clearly identify there is a gender gap between those two sectors. And there's a potential for that to you know, add to the advocacy for this to be extended to early childhood educators as well. Cool. That's it. That's the summary. This is cool. We, we will, we'll, 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 uh, we'll, we'll. Oh, we'll sorry. Are we supposed to say something intelligent like, yes, we really support the IAU and we hope that, you know, that the, we hope they're actually having a demonstration, a small demonstration outside of the um, court tomorrow. And they're hoping that lots of people will turn up, but that will have been the day before this podcast is released. That will have already happened. So, yeah. But um, we, we really hope everyone supports them. And I think one of the things that 
we really need to understand is how expensive it is to um, to launch a case like this. I think I could be wrong, but I think I looked and there was 800 pages of evidence. And that's a lot of work put in by a union to get that much evidence together from, you know, various teachers, etc. And I just hope that people actually, you know, support the union by joining their appropriate union and, you know, actually working towards improving wages in the sector. Absolutely. And look, we'll be definitely following this case. I reckon it would uh, not be unlikely that we'd have Martel back on the show to talk about her experience. These things tend to go on for quite a while, so I doubt we're going to be having a you know, a verdict or a or an outcome anytime soon, but this will definitely be a case uh, worth watching. But let's move on to our main topic for tonight. So last week, uh, Women's Agenda, a news website, ran an article on Kindu. I assume that we have to legally say the exclamation point in that name. So Leanne and Lisa, during the discussion, please make sure that the exclamation point is verbally said. Uh, an early childhood <laughs> centre in Ferntree Gully that is now offering morning, afternoon and evening sessions for three to six-year-olds. Where is Ferntree Gully? I actually thought that was some Victoria, mystical land where it? Tinkerbell lived, but I may have been watching too many Tinkerbell movies over the last few years with young children. Isn't it in Victoria, sort of just out of Melbourne? I'm sure someone will correct us and tell us exactly where it is. So please tweet us don't if you're from Don't love the way how Gully. we do a podcast about something and don't even know where it is. <laughs> it's in Australia. We, that's, 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 it's a that's suburb of Melbourne at the foothills of the Dandenong There you way. go. There you go. I think east of Melbourne Central Business District. <laughs> well, there you go. Well, this this centre in that location that Lisa just said uh, are offering morning, afternoon, and evening sessions for three to six year olds up to eleven thirty p.m. as well as options for Saturday nights. So this would fit in well with what the government and Education Minister Simon Birmingham expect the sector to do with a new childcare subsidy. But Australia has tried flexible early education, or what is more usually referred to as flexible childcare before. So we decided this might be a good opportunity to have a bit of a chat about uh, what flexibility has meant in the past and what the results have shown us. So it might be worth having a bit of a chat about what's been tried in the past. And we know there's been a particular, there was a quite a big flexibility trial that was announced by the Labor government in 2013 by Kate Ellis. Um, that was about $1.5 million for a trial of a range of flexible uh, early childhood options. And uh, what that kind of told us in broad summary, and we'll get into it a bit, is that it was pretty much not a success. So uh, Kate Ellis was hoping that around 500 families were expected to participate. And at, by the time it ended, only about 80 had taken part. Uh, and, the, you know, the department spokesperson had the flexibility trial program is performing well below the targets that were set when it was announced. No kidding. I guess one of the challenges with this program was it was announced by the Labor government, but kind of finished by the by the Abbott government at the time. Um, but do, do, do we, this was, so this was a little while ago, but do we remember this, this trial and sort of where, you know, and I guess how it was viewed in the sector? So, Liam, sorry, I think we do need to go back a bit further than that because it's not actually the first time that we've had flexible um, arrangements. Oh, I mean, go this, for was, it. this was a big trial, but in the 80s, plenty of people will remember that there were 24-hour services trialled and, um, and these were based in hospitals and universities and they were designed to accommodate the, the shift work or the, the different working hours that people who um, were in those uh, organisations, those workplaces needed. And so that, that, was the, that 
actually existed at that time, but they were uh, phased out. And so maybe if we sort of talk about the, the trial, we can reflect on some of the things that happened in the 80s um, that made it unsuccessful at that time as well. Now, I'm not suggesting anything to either of you, but um, I wasn't around for those uh, that, 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 <laughs> that time in, in the sector, so oh, I'd be God. interested. Go I'd on, be... out yourself. How old were you in the 80s? Um, well... I was born in the mid eighties, shall we say mm -hmm. that? So I was. I mean, I, I, I may have. I, to be fair, I mean, I may have been able to use those services in the eighties, but, um, <laughs> but so I, I can offer that perspective, but not as You're a feeling old, Leanne. <laughs> I, I was actually just processing how old our children are, Lisa, and <laughs> thinking <laughs> Liam could be our our son. Oh, no. That would be a heck of a twist for the podcast, wouldn't it? <laughs> I've never thought about that before, but yeah, okay. He seems so grown up. <laughs> you know, what was the the take up rate of the? You know, were these well used? Were they? How were they viewed in the sector? These sort of twenty four hour services. Well, initially they were, um, you know, greeted with with great excitement because these were the sorts of places where people needed, where childcare was really needed. And and obviously the 80s had a big, you know, there was a big sort of boost to um, childcare, which it was called, um, at that time through a whole range of different different approaches. And it was a planning model. So this was part of the, the planning model was to do this. And, and it wasn't too badly funded either because there was a bit more money around then. Um, and... People did use them initially, but then they found that they were not um, that the, the places weren't being taken, and that the things like the staffing costs were far too high. Um, security was an issue as well, so of course you needed to have a number of uh, what was called childcare workers on at the time, and that was costly. But you also needed extra security at those sites. And the resources and materials weren't really there, but the, the big the big issue was that people wanted their children to be at home in bed rather oh, than how, rather how, how strange of them rather than um, in a childcare centre overnight. And so the number of children that were using these services reduced markedly, and and that was when those services reduced their hours. Sometimes they they kept those services to be um, for like the late shift of, say, a hospital, but not into overnight, not night shift. No, understandable. And then I guess, you know, moving on from that point, I guess the, the sector then very much moved to a market model uh, of, of sector provision. And one of the things I sort of looked at when I was looking at some of the articles around this stuff was that uh, pretty much what you were saying there, Leanne, is that the the that the, there isn't a market model that works for this because, yes, there may be some families that uh, need or, or desire this service, but the costs of running it are so huge that it's prohibitively uh, expensive to run. And that was borne out. I think there was um, – and this this service may still be doing this. I couldn't really – I couldn't tell. But there was a service, I think, in World Square at Ridges um, that was 24 it hours. And yeah, it was interesting. It, yeah, there was an article there about yeah, and there was an article there about them saying it's just it's incredibly rarely taken up because they have people up, they have people ringing and asking, and then as soon as the the hourly fee is quoted to them, they say, oh, okay, actually, we'll we'll sort out something else. So well, well, do you know what? what? About 60, do you know what the hourly fee? No, it's about sixty dollars an hour, isn't it? No, a hundred and sixty an 
hour. <gasps> I was going to say, I think it was $60 an hour about 10 I years ago. I actually had to do some research on this. I, I do a lot of work for local governments who want to know about the needs of childcare in their area. And last year, one local government in New South Wales asked that we, they'd been um, to, approached for people trying to get DAs for 24-hour care. And so they wanted to know, was it any good for children, how, you know, how much of it existed, etc. So um, I found one in South Australia, two in Melbourne and two in New, and one in New South Wales that were offering a 24-hour care or extended care situation. The 24-hour care in New South Wales, no one um, very rarely has it been used because it's $160 an hour. Um, they, the reason why it's so much was they couldn't get approval under family assistance legislation to obtain um, CCB and CCR for the 24 hours. So even though they were licensed for it, they couldn't get the CCB and CCR. One of the ones in Melbourne that I looked at, um, it is licensed for 24 hours, but at the moment it only offers 6.30 to 10.30 but realistically, they say they're operating 6.30 to 8 and they only have about 30 children who stay who haven't been collected before 6.30am and that's out of 130 children. So I think it's more parents just working late rather than any intention to leave you, them there for the evening. Is that 6.30pm? That 6.30pm, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's yes. really that's really interesting. I think it feeds into so... That's probably a good segue from the from the things that are happening in the 80s to stuff like this service, which is trying to operate under what was the CCMS system and the, the family assistance law um, requirements, uh, which was what kind of led to the flexibility trial was that there was, you know, pretty regularly there was media around how the existing, you know, hours for particularly long daycare centres weren't meeting the needs of particular families. So, um, you know, with some exceptions and, and people have individual ones, you know, most centres are roughly open from seven till six or some sort of variation around there or eight to six or 7.30 to six or blah, 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 blah. And there was always these sort of calls from uh, from groups or from individuals going, you know, what about people on shift work? So Labor announced this this pilot and without going into the nitty gritty of the, of the outcome, but the Australian Institute of Family Studies did uh, you know, a, a program evaluation on it, and what they found was um, it was just it was just poorly taken up, even with even with additional funding and even with services. So the and I'm talking all over the shop, but the flexibility trial essentially had a few different components. One was some uh, early childhood centres, mostly Good Start centres, were funded to stay open longer. Uh, family daycare ed educators were given additional funding to support, particularly uh, children and families. Uh, of uh, people in emergency services, such as police, and there was some other income care component as, as well. But what was found was that, which wasn't a huge surprise to me, was that they were just incredibly poorly taken up. So what's always interested me about this debate about, you know, the need for more flexible operating hours and the needs to better meet the needs of working families is there's never been any hard data behind it. No one said this is the number of families who are being disadvantaged by the, the, the hours they're currently open. And no one has ever presented that, even to this day. There's no, you know, hard numbers or evidence around that this is actually a huge problem in the sector and is not actually, is what I think it is, is actually a fairly isolated problem. And a problem, I would argue, it's not the sector's responsibility to solve. Um, I don't know why it's always, you know, our sector, the early childhood sector, that is expected to bend and flex and, and 
twist itself into knots to help working families? Why can't that be achieved, you know, in other ways through the community? But I, I think it, it probably is, Liam, and that's the, the, you know, you say it's an isolated problem, but for, for um, I think the focus was always on the, the police, the nurses and the paramedics, right? That was the, that was the group that was cited as, um, you know, being the, the people that needed it, but they're, they're probably already uh, making arrangements for themselves or the workplace is is making those arrangements so it's i guess the problem's not isolated but people have found their own solutions to that and things that suit them more than using a childcare service and also some family daycare services already offer um yeah. the sort of arrangements that they need as well <clears throat> And yeah, and there's the in-home care system. Liam, I suppose the reason why the sector is asked to do it is because we're the ones that are providing early education and care to children. <clears throat> but I think the problem is that this specific problem is only about care. It's not about education. No one's seriously suggesting that children are being educated at some point beyond, you know, seven o'clock when they're likely to be asleep anyway. And, you know, as an advocate for the sector to be purely or, you know, mostly about uh, learning with a, with, yeah. a, with an emphasis on well-being and care as a critical component of education. I don't see why, given we already operate, you know, pretty ridiculous hours and educators have to work shift work, why why does it always sort of fall in this? Why is it? And, and this is particularly relevant now because, you know, Minister Birmingham has, has publicly come out and said he expects services to be meeting the needs of families. Yeah. At what point do we talk about, I mean, A, the needs of children, and we can talk about that in a minute, but... You know, at what point do we stop asking the educators, you know, around Australia to, you know, to, you know, once again go the extra mile for working families? And I guess my point is, you know, this, it's never, it's never two ways. We never sit down and have a national conversation around, well, this is an issue for a certain, you know, number of families. Why aren't we going to the business community and going to workplaces and going, well, what are you going to do about that? What's the solution? Mm. How are you going to be more flexible yeah, around think, supporting families? Yeah, I think that's a, a a great point, and I think that there there is more work being done. I I agree with you on those things, and I think there is more work being done in terms of going to workplaces and workplaces being flexible. And it's it's as you say those those other other challenges. And I sorry, I'm coming back to saying I see what you're saying now. Originally, I thought you were kind of saying, well, why should we do it? Yeah, um, yeah. But with the with the focus on education, very good point, Liam. Excellent point. I think you'd have to, like, our argument would have to be that children are being educated whenever they're awake. I think, Liam saying they're asleep. Well, I think they're likely to be, if we're talking birth to five, I mean, I I think at a certain point that's that, that doesn't really become what it's about, particularly if we're talking about, so to use the, you know, the article to spark this conversation, if they're offering sessions, sessions to 11.30pm, I mean, let's be realistic. That's that's not what's happening. This is a care arrangement, and there are other ways that can be that can be looked at. Um, and there is, you know, there's okay. Just playing devil's advocate, wouldn't mm-hmm. you rather have your child in licensed and regulated care than backyard care, regardless of the hours of the day? But I think I, I think it's a false choice. So I. I 
there are, in my mind, is the, the why is it only a choice between unregulated care and the ECEC system? If, the, if this is an issue, why can't we come up with another solution? And look, in family daycare is probably, you know, that this is already happening to some extent in family daycare. And now, uh, you know, I guess what I come down to is I think this, why ECEC doesn't need to be the solution to this. So I would, I guess I would avoid your question, Lisa, by saying, well, I, do, I disagree that that's the choice. The choice is that we're saying this is a problem in the community. We need to come up with another solution that, to me, would involve the business community and workplaces and the community in general saying, we have these people. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'd agree with you there. Like, you know, we need to accept that families are families, that children have a valid right to be cared for, and that economic imperatives shouldn't get in the way of that care. Yeah. So, so it's it's a bigger it's it's a bigger question on policy really around families and around you know society in in many ways and that was one of the things I suppose that came out in all of these trials and the point that was made is that you can't actually make a better life for people just by putting in a program you know yeah. by just having a program that solves a problem because it doesn't solve the bigger issues around having a child-focused society. And, and, it's, and it's exactly the same thing as when they say, you know, like schools should um, be open until five o'clock. You know, as a mother, did you want your children at school till five o'clock every day? No. Yeah. I mean, well, they not. <laughs> Why didn't you? What was... Well, I don't think... Uh, sometimes I didn't want my children there between nine and three either, but <laughs> I think that, because I just don't think it's good for children. It's it's that, you know, and I think that that's what policymakers, because they're primarily men and whose children are the responsibility of somebody else, they actually don't understand that, that, you know, that it isn't good for children to be outside the home for long hours every day. It isn't good for children to be out of their own beds at night. It isn't good for children to be seen as an impediment to work, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's probably a good segue, and you've obviously kind of answered this question just then, Lisa, but this idea of... Um, and I was going to say, look, as an extreme example, but it's not. This this service has advertised they're doing this. It's been picked up by Women's Agenda. So the idea of you know children being at an early childhood centre to eleven thirty, do we do we think that's good for children? No. No, and and look. Well, heck, just just let's take a step back because I think we're being, I think in a way we're we're sort of framing up the well maybe we're not. I'm just assuming that we're framing up a family as looking in a particular way and maybe that that works for a family. I'm not saying that's the solution, but it's, you know, some children do need care at those times and why are we saying that that's a bad choice? Mm, this is a more interesting discussion than I thought we'd had. I think I think one of the problems with this is I think there's, there's sort of three, there's three ways to approach this this discussion and they all have different sort of traps in them. So one's to approach it from what I was talking about before, which is, I guess, the educator sector perspective. So what's the impact on the sector and, and educators? 
then there's families and then there's children. Now, those two are intertwined. But it's interesting, looking at the, the article that we mentioned, and we'll include a link to it, it was it was a glowing article that was talking about how entrepreneurial the centre was. I actually thought it was an advertorial. It, well, <laughs> no, I didn't actually check. But you raise a really interesting point, Leanne, because so we know that they're, well, let's look at it both ways. So one, there are, you know, fa- you know, an average family that this is, you know, this is maybe the only choice they have and would it be better that they're in, as Lisa said, a regulated service? Maybe yes. The other thing is, you know, there may be uh, cases where children may be better off in a service than at home. So we know there are, you know, families and children experiencing disadvantage. We know there are, you know, children who home may not be the safest place for them. So I think... Yeah, I, I guess I come back to there's no. It's not about having hard yeses or nos. I guess the, the, it always comes back to me is why is this something that the ECC system yeah. needs to solve? I, I, so we're not talking about schools I, staying open until eleven thirty, so that you know eight year olds can be looked after as well. I, I think and, that, and the difference is, is because we're, sorry, Leanne, that's the second time I've cut you off. I'll shut up now. <laughs> no, no, I think it's a point well made. I, I guess I'm just asking the question i'm not saying yes or no what it is but i i think well if we have i mean i'm pretty sure some of those children that have been um children of of shift workers and all of those um particular occupations may in the past may have actually been left alone at home so you know i i just can't get that out of my head but i think your point about who should take care of that is that's a, a point well made, and I guess they're two different points. Over to you, Lisa. Yeah, look, I agree with all of that. I suppose the, the point that Liam just made about you know who's looking after eight-year-olds or who's saying that there has to be you know nighttime care for eight-year-olds, the difference is, is that the government sees this yeah. as a business. And they see it as a business that should want to take up this opportunity to meet market demand. And they think, who would want after-hours care? Obviously, there's market demand there from nurses and teachers and all those people who do those cuddly caring jobs for other people, you know. Of course, someone needs to look after their children. And why wouldn't business just step up to the mark and fill Mm -hmm. that? So Mm. I suppose that's why when you say, why is it the ECA sector... Well, because the government thinks of them as businesses and like the one that was written up in the article or advertorial and, (laughs) you know, the the others that are trying to do it are trying to do it to create a point of difference in their marketing and because they see that there's a market there. Mm. Absolutely. Well, you know, talking about the government and talking about um, the education minister, so... Let's let's link this with the childcare subsidy briefly. So this, you know, so one of the big changes in the childcare subsidy is the removal of the amount of hours that services have to be open, which means they can do sessions. Um, is the are we, so? I guess a couple of questions. One, are we going to be seeing more of this kind of thing? So this service in particular is talking about morning, afternoon, and evening sessions. Is that something we're going to see more of? And then another question for I me: mean, this this is going to get a bit nerdy and, and technical, but. For me, how does this? How is this going to fit in with the hourly fee cap? A family is going to be able to claim mm. the subsidy for this time. I assume they would be based on the legislation, but how much a service is going to have to charge for this? Given you would hope that they're paying educators, you know, after hours wages. This is going to go way over the hourly fee cap, isn't it? This can't be a sustainable model. Of course it is, and I think that's one of the real problems with the in-home care system. 
um, the, you know, uh, in-home cares existed for you know, 18, 20 years and what they've done now is brought it into the CSS model. It's always been under CCB and CCR, but like everyone else that came into the CCS model, but they've set a cap um, for in-home care of about $24 an hour. I'm not exactly sure of that figure, but around that. And it's just nowhere near enough for the cost of having an educator in a family's home with, you know, only three or four children. Like, it's unlike um, centre-based care where the amount is per child, this is an amount per family. So if you had three children in a centre-based care system and, um, uh, you know, you had three of them, they'd each be getting $11 an hour at maximum of the cap, right? Whereas in-home care, it's only $24 for that whole family. And I just can't say it's surviving. I think it's got, you know, it's, it's underfunded. And so what my understanding has happened, you know, in the first few weeks of it is a lot of educators and a lot of services pulled out because they were previously charging like 40 or $50 an hour and families are just saying, we can't afford that on a subsidy of $25. What was, and it, what was it funded to in the past? Was it funded to that level or? It was funded on a per child basis, the same oh, as centre-based right. care was. Okay. Yeah. And a lot of services charge special CCB because um, rates, so they were a lot higher, um, but they were covered under special CCB because these families that use in-home care are families who have complex lives where, you know, a parent is dying or a child in the family is dying or where they have extreme shift work. Mm. And and is that what actually went wrong with the nanny trial as well? That was oh, of course. So it was the same. It was yeah, like nannies were. um, I think this subsidy was twenty five dollars an hour, and uh, it may have even been twenty dollars an hour, and. and that was to cover as many children there was in the home. And so why would a nanny, I think the, the, each of the services that were involved in the nanny trial set the rates for their nannies. And I think in, I could be wrong here, but I think in New South Wales it was like $25 an hour. Who would be a nanny for $25 an hour looking after three or four children when you could get the same amount in, you know, a service where you had support and backup and Mm. a lot less children to be responsible for. And families were also shocked because they thought, you know, it was a nanny trial, they were going to get a nanny. You know, they didn't realise that, you know, they'd be charged something like, you know, $45 an hour to enable that nanny to be paid and the service to survive and, you know, all the costs to be paid. Mm. So that was another one that went down the gurgler, was it, the nanny trial? Yeah. <laughs> they, they expected something. I think they expected something like 5,000 families nationally and got 400 
those figures could be wrong, but it was just mm. like it just didn't happen. And and the the evaluations of that, the, um, you know, it was just families saying, you know, we couldn't afford it. Mm. It wasn't what we thought it was when we signed up for it. So I guess as we move towards sort of wrapping up this discussion, are there, you know, we, I guess we've been largely negative, although it's been, you know, there's been some interesting chats that have made me think about stuff as well. But in terms of, you know, flexibility and young children and ECEC, is there, are there, do we think there are things that do work? Have we got examples of where we've seen things that have, you know, maybe somehow ticks the box of supporting both the sector, children and families? Or, or are there things we yeah, need that could family work? Don't yeah, family don't care. Family don't care. Because, yeah. you know, like you have a relationship with that carer. It's not a one-off kind of thing, you know. It's it's occurring in a family home, albeit not the child's home, but a, a home that a child is familiar with. And I suppose it's an extension of the kind of babysitting that, you know, communities have done for, you know, for families in communities have done for each other for millennials. You know, but now it's just a, a paid service. Just got to watch out for the rotors. You've got the rotors, right? But I think, yeah. I think also to Liam that the findings from the um, the Australian Institute of Family Studies, because they were tasked with evaluating it, and I think that the findings probably sort of pointed in in the direction is that the flexibility really is just one thing that parents are looking for yeah so you know where we we sort of do oh let's have a big flexibility trial because we need to put a program in place for every single family or or solve a problem and and that's really not the the main thing there are some parents who are looking for that but that is not the main thing the main thing is that they want to have the educator that they want so where where the flexibility um you know was there if it wasn't the educator that they wanted or one that they were familiar with and the co- the continuity of that carer, then they didn't want that flexibility. Yeah. So it, it really has to come back to it being a familiar, um, you know, a, a, fam- a familiar care opportunity, I suppose, for them. And that, that is family daycare for some of those families. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, thank you both for that interesting discussion. If, you know, if any of our listeners have anything to add to that, if you have an experience with, you know, flexible models of operation or if there are specific things that happen in your uh, your community or service. I'd be very interested to hear what people think about how And, and child... I'd especially like to know if anyone actually does, like works in a service or, or knows a service that is running ex- exceptionally long hours because I often well, need to know that. So. What, what happened to the one at the casino? There used to be one at the casino, wasn't there, in Sydney? Yeah, that's right. What happened to that? Um, and the other thing that I was curious about, sorry, Liam, I know you're trying to wrap wrap up, but the the sixty action research projects that were a part of the trials with the outside oh, school yeah. hours care, I, I'd be sort of interested to know if any listeners had the experience of that. It sounded like there were some good outcomes from those those research projects in connecting up community or communities of outside school hours care services. But if there is anybody who had anything to do with those, that would be quite interesting as well. All right. Well, let's leave it there and we'll be uh, we'll be 
um, as we said, eager to hear from anyone, get in touch with us via the usual methods if you would like to. Um, we we are in the midst of, so as we record this on a Wednesday night, this episode will be coming out on a Friday, but we're preparing for our first ever live show at the Social Justice and Early Childhood Conference uh, in Redfern. This Friday, the day this comes out, we will be there either doing really no, well or Saturday, making complete fools Saturday. of ourselves. Oh, Saturday. God, it is Saturday. I see there's, there's too much going on, listeners. So this is all you know, <laughs> all more good evidence to say we were a bit unorganised this week and haven't done uh, recommendations for you all. So, so our apologies. No, no Liam, Liam, oh, I've what? got a recommendation. <gasps> Leanne, show off. <laughs> <laughs> I have one and it's a very important one. Can I say it? Absolutely, go, go for it. For I'm, it. I'm intrigued okay. to hear what this, you know, this example of early childhood right, education practice will be. <laughs> well, it might not be, but maybe I don't know. It's actually a Tour de France podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, so this one goes out to our Tour de France listeners. They won't bother listening to us. Oh, this one week. of you. <laughs> <laughs> one of them. Isn't Carl a Tour de Force head? Carl Hessian. Carl, this is for you. You already listened to this, I'm sure. But what I love about this, and I'll be super quick, it's Lance Armstrong and it's called The Move. And one of the best things about it is it's got George Hincapie on it. Um, and that that's a it's a real bonus. But what I love about what, what it is, and it actually says this in the show notes, Lance Armstrong presents a singular perspective, which I love. There's no objectivity in it at all. It's an absolutely singular perspective. And anybody who feels badly about Lance and all the drugs that he used to to do whatever he did, he's, we still love him. So, therefore... Please listen to the move. It's in my recommendations. There you go. Well, look when when you and Carl get, sporting event on it. When you and Carl get together and do your early childhood themed tour to force podcast, I'm available for producing. <laughs> Excellent. Happy to pull what, that does together. Does that come before or after your Doctor Who one or before both Still of your waiting? I, I, the, I, thing I can't. <laughs> I can't remember the first episode I brought this out. I said, "I listeners, I will ditch these two in a hot second if someone will do a Doctor Who podcast <laughs> with me out there. I'm uh, you, you. These two won't know how quickly I, I've never talked to them. Is there a market? Is there a market? Is there a market? He's still here. What number episode was it, Liam? Seventy something. Seventy one. Still, still here, people. Come on, come on. There's got to be someone out there. Look at the. My recommendation then is the new trailer for series eleven, which has. <laughs> Jodie Whittaker's first scenes as the doc. I'm so excited. I can't wait till Jodie Yay. starts. Um, all right. I'm, so I'm, I've done a very good job of keeping oh this podcast on the rails people. this week. We're, we're doing well. This bodes well for the live show, doesn't it? I'm sure it'll go fantastically. But um, so look, if you are, again, this episode's coming out today. If you're in, uh, if you're attending social justice conference on Saturday, we're looking forward to seeing you. If not, the episode should hopefully be released the next uh, week. This will be the first time we're trying to record a live show. So um, please be, be, be nice and gentle with us. But hopefully we'll be able to release that episode uh, next Friday. But uh, unless we're seeing you, tomorrow at the social justice conference uh, we will see you next week so it's goodbye from me and from me and from me you have been listening to the early education show hosted by lisa bryant leanne gibbs and leanne mcnicholas and produced by leanne mcnicholas find us online at earlyeducationshow.com and while you're there it would be great if you could hit the support the show tab where you can become a patron of the show and support us for as little as $1 a month. We really appreciate it. Get in touch with us at earlyedushow at gmail.com or on Facebook and Twitter with the username Early Edu Show. 
If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating and review on the Apple Podcast Store. This really helps other people find the show. See you next time.